Hello, and welcome to the Nostalgia Podcast. A podcast where we discuss the retelling or continuation of pop culture favorites as seen through a queer and feminist lens. My name is Eric Lefebri. And my name is Jessica Tercero. And this week, we watched Candyman and Candyman. And Candyman. Candyman. First of all, happy October to everyone. Uh, Welcome (laughs) to Scary Season Central. So what a good way to start the scary month of October. Yeah, we took a break. We took a little bit of a break. uh, A week or like an episode, right? Yeah, we took Uh, an episode off. We had a lot going on. Yes. Um, But we are here with a great episode i think for this what a good return like after like a rest to to come back to something that was like pleasant not uh, something i mean yeah but like well, to what come back a to good this. watch both of yeah. these are an incredible watch watch both of them yeah holy shit and to be fair watch them back to back because as a continuation of a story uh it works really well if and you're I had just no like idea. Me neither. I was like, okay, cool. This yeah. is a remake because it's not Candyman 2 or The Return of Candyman or, you know, like it doesn't like it is the exact same name for this movie. So yeah. it's like, cool. But then that also ties into what the second movie says about Candyman, which is really yeah. cool, which we'll get into. But I, you all know that I am very scared of scary movies. And <laughs> um, I think I realized that I might be way more into them than I thought because um Carrie was awesome and great, and I loved it. And this was awesome and great, and I loved it. And I think I just don't like uh, senseless, scary movies because I obviously love like sci-fi and supernatural and all of that stuff. Not supernatural, the TV show. Although I don't know if you like it, that's great. But I have never watched <laughs> it. But yeah, like this movie had something to say and was very pointed. Even like the first one being in 1992, I was really impressed with how much they were trying to talk about like gentrification and segregation and all of that. And yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) I've never seen Candyman. Uh, My only history with Candyman was seeing the poster. Uh, And by the poster, I mean the box for the VHS at the local uh, video store growing up. Cause I would always like go down that aisle and Candyman was like always right there. And I was always like, wow, that looks great like that looks so scary oh my god and whatever and so i've never i never saw it so i didn't really understand the historical context apart from saying his name five times he shows up and kills you i was like what a cool concept the bloody mary idea super into it (laughs) but that's literally all i knew about this so going into it with a completely cleansed lens essentially was really interesting and uh what what a poignant story what an interesting way to discuss like we're going to get way more into it, but like whiteness as the focal point of narrative within a black story and a black history and the way that they did that, I was like, this is, I can't like, I'm just so, I'm so ready to talk about it. I'm the bad so ready guy to talk on about every it. level is whiteness yeah. and white supremacy, yeah. right? From oh, yeah. like the dawn of Candyman to um, what happens in this film oh, to even God. just in the world around you. Yeah. Like neither of these films let you forget how harmful white supremacy is and Mm -hmm. it's just it's so good i did not expect this at all i had no idea what this is about (laughs) and i'm just i'm so excited to talk about it i can't wait oh my god should we just jump in let's do it oh my god okay cool 
While researching for her graduate studies thesis, urban legend skeptic Helen Lyle encounters the story of Candyman. Legend has it that if you say his name five times while looking into a mirror, Candyman will appear and murder the summoners. With the help of her friend Bernadette Walsh, the two summon Candyman during an initial investigation of Cabrini Green, where the Candyman murders took place. It is here that she also meets Anne-Marie McCoy and her infant son Anthony. On a return visit to Cabrini Green, Helen is jumped by a man she assumes is the Candyman, but isn't, only to meet the real Candyman who hypnotizes her, seeking vengeance for discrediting his legend. Helen wakes up covered in blood at Anne-Marie's apartment, where their dog has been murdered and Anthony has been stolen. Helen becomes the prime suspect. In subsequent brutal murder after subsequent brutal murder, Candyman rains havoc on unsuspecting proximate characters, including Helen's best friend, Bernadette, where Helen continues to be framed as the cold-blooded killer. Helen, determined to clear her name and to return Anthony to his mother, seeks out Candyman's lair, who propositions a deal. If she surrenders her life for legendary immortality, Anthony will not be harmed. She agrees. However, Candyman lies and attempts to kill Anthony in a Cabrini Green fire. Helen pulls Anthony from the fire that smolders Candyman and ultimately dies from her injuries. Helen then becomes the Candyman herself. So, um, where do we where, start? Where do we start? Yeah, I think so much. I think I'll start with the biggest conversation i think that this this movie intentionally sort of permeates and discusses which is like it's not necessarily like white savior complexities but it's really the idea that a whiteness even in its most innocent form is violence especially amongst communities of color so like this oh my god i have so much this okay so this white person who is studying the trauma of blackness as a theoretical right for like for the sake of of knowledge and sort of higher education for the sake of theory she's studying the trauma of blackness as a spectator as an outsider and in all of these instances when she includes herself into this history by like going to the projects going to the south side cabrini green meeting these people her proximity to this is the instigating force behind every single murder, even in the context of um, I'm innocent, I'm innocent. Yeah, technically she's not doing it, but the reason it's happening is because of her, because she was there, because like the whole reason Candyman comes back is because she's like, oh, what if we just did this thing? Like using the trauma of an entire community as sort of like this plaything, as this theoretical, as something that isn't real. Right. Because she doesn't understand the severity of it. And then in all of these instances, like the only reason Candyman comes back, A, she brought him back. B, she is told where Candyman lives theoretically by this young kid who's like, I don't trust you. She's like, you can trust me. He's like, can I? And she's like, yes, he trusts her. He tells her where Candyman lives in that bathroom is jumped by somebody who's like, you don't belong here. Get the fuck out. Like, what are you doing here? She then goes straight to the fucking cops, brings the young boy there too, who has to go back to that community and could be in danger. And he's like, you told, you told on me, you told them. And she's like, no, but it's not going to go to court. So it's not an issue. And that's, she constantly reframes the goalpost of what is true and isn't true because to her, nothing is real in this context of blackness. To him, he's like, you told on me, you did this. And she's like, well, it's not going to go to court. So... It's not a problem, but it's like, 
But that wasn't the conversation. You like she's putting people in active harm at every step, and then the entire time is like, wait, no, I didn't mean it. It's not me. But it's like, well, sure. But it is. It's her performativeness as uh, trying to. At first, she wasn't necessarily trying to be an ally. So, like, this movie is having, like, the has these really smart um, lines of dialogue where they're talking about um, gentrification and when they're talking about, um, you know, how that was, like, how that in itself is, like, an act of white supremacy and because of um, where the projects are built and it has to be, like, you know, um, sectioned off by a train or there has to be some sort of physical barrier, right? So... She's smart enough to know and recognize these things, but is not engaging with it, is just observing it. Yeah. Um, and very much where, um, like, her friend, who is black, right, uh, Bernadette, uh, who is also part of this thesis, is like, hey, we don't belong here. Hey, this is not where we should go. We we should not do this. And she's like, no, 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 it's fine. When she's going to these places and she's like actively saying it really sucks that you know a white woman uh, gets hurt or gets murdered and then everybody's here but then a black person gets murdered and nothing happens so she's also kind of digging into this because she's trying to be like oh well but nobody really looked into this i'm gonna help get some sort of like answers or some sort of justice i'm gonna figure this out like but she's not heeding anybody's warnings from that community Um, and she doesn't believe them so she's like actively everybody's saying like hey this happened hey this is bad hey maybe don't do this hey no really don't do this i like you know Anne marie says i was here i called the cops nobody believed me i called 911 nobody believed me they never came and she's like okay i'm gonna take this like yeah that that white savior mentality yeah and it's um so by doing that, she's only doing it for herself and for her thesis, right? But she's not really doing it for the community because she doesn't believe them. It's so self-centered and rooted in that whiteness because it really is. She is a spectator. She is a she is visiting this space as just a spectator, as an outsider. And it's like that line. Oh, so good. The. You know what sucks? Two people get brutally murdered and they don't do anything. Meanwhile, a white woman gets hit and they immediately find the guy. Sure. Technically, yes. You're commenting on this system that is based and rooted in white supremacy that only favors and works for whiteness at every level. So, yes, technically, that's correct. And wow, isn't it a fuck system? Meanwhile, actively participating in that system that enacts violence on non-white people. And that is the insidiousness of like white liberalism or like white wokeness to this degree of like how it's perceived in this way and it's so like this movie is in 1992 like what a really like fucking great and poignant way to point out that double standard of this lead of her whiteness where she's trying to exclude herself from it because she's like well i'm doing good work no you're theorizing on people's trauma you're doing no work for the community you're only working for your own goals and your own self-interest because to you this is going to help you graduate and probably get a job and do whatever to them people are dying because of you you show up and now people are dying like that line was so good and so poignant and i was like oh fuck yeah like (laughs) iconic and her friend too like literally if if you're not going to listen to like the folks in the community listen to your fucking friend who's like hey you don't get it 
you don't know what it's like. You don't like we shouldn't be here. A B you shouldn't be here. C get the fuck out of these people's lives. Like, what are you doing? Like also, we can do other stuff. We can study something else. We need to go. She's like, just give me five minutes. She's like, no, let's then, go <laughs> in that moment. Um, uh, Helen uses um, her internalized patriarchy as like a moment to like force Bernadette to do it where she's like, oh, well, would would these would the other men go Would these dudes go? And she's like, well, yeah. And so like, Gag. you know, she's yeah, she's like using this other part of of this broken, fucked up system that she's a part of. Right. Especially because like she married her professor, which is double gross. Um she thinks that she's like, she's like, okay, going into this apartment where somebody was murdered. She's okay, like, going in and digging into that. And that's kind of like, you know, like, I'm not really into true crime, <laughs> right? Yeah. But like, um, it, like, part of her felt like a little bit of like, that true crime girl that like, is just well, like, that's... oh, I'm totally going to get in here. I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to solve this, which like, okay. It's, it's... Oh, my God. It's a mix but, of the white savior complex with the idea of like, wow, what an interesting narrative. Like, what a theoretical story is that so isn't cool that real. Somebody this got is so murdered. Cool. How can I solve this? Because something wasn't here and or like because they didn't like. So when I kind of have an issue with people or with with that idea of taking like the brutalization of these people and like using it as like this cult fascination to yeah. like here isn't this neat like wow oh my gosh like because at the end of the day a lot of the time we are talking about um uh brutalized female bodies um yeah. and like the murders of women and so that's like you know a huge part of media in general but like that becomes like this obsession that like i it feels really icky to me. Well, it, it's it's super icky because like truly, at least within sort of fiction, fictional narratives within like movies like this or a lot of other horror films, it is fictional. It's like not real lives, real people. But because of our consumption of media in this way where it's like I am outside of this narrative and I'm hearing of it within a true crime, say like true crime podcast spaces. These are real lives. These are real people's lives. These are real people's histories. On the like, it's like, oh, this person is famous because of their proximity to men, or because of what happened, or like they were murdered because of X, Y, and Z, right? But like, they're famous because of a murder that because of violence that was done to them, not because they because of their dreams and goals and aspirations, like because of what they're capable of or anything. It is they're famous because they were murdered and brutalized and more often than not the that story and that narrative is not even about the person that was murdered it's about how the how the perpetrator like how the murderer got away with it or how they yeah. did it and it's yeah. like this fascination on that that process not on the victim just on the victim's body and what was done yeah and that's i mean that's largely the problem with it is because of patriarchal violence and sort of the the teaching of like patriarchal misogyny to everybody to us that consumption is more of like oh what an interesting thing be largely because it's the brutalization of women and the brutalization of like feminists in this way where it's like oh isn't this awful and terrible and disgusting but like why are we so intrigued by it in a way that brings joy right like mm -hmm. 
why 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 do we consume this because it's fun and entertaining it's like i mean not really how is this fun or entertaining how is the discussion of somebody's brutalized body fun or entertaining like in a real a real story of that like i know that like something like unsolved mysteries or or whatever like there is the mystery of it is what keeps people engaged but Mm -hmm. specifically like true crime murder stuff is rough it's super rough like why are we seeking entertainment from that i think it's rough when it's just so um it's so removed from these being actual people and from it being more like a puzzle that you need to solve like it it turns um, trauma into a game yeah yeah it turns it turns actual violence into a sport into like a fun interactive community-based puzzle and if you if that's your thing good for you that's that's not my thing that's just how i feel about it and you might have um absolutely uh you might have valid feelings about it or a different take on it and that's great but that's i'm just saying from my personal viewpoint in life this is kind of how i see it because i'm just really tired of um seeing women in the news and uh being murdered and killed and then all of the ones that don't because they're not you know, Gabby Pietro or whatever her name was. Well, that, you know, this is because this is so prevalent, especially on TikTok. Like it is, it is such in the ether of true crime. Po- it's like people were being like, it's like a real true life. It's like in real time, true crime podcast is like, yeah, no shit. It's a murder. <laughs> it's happening. Like mm-hmm. stop comparing it to entertainment. It's like an actual thing that's happening to somebody like, and, and the here's my thing. Desensitization. Yes. The desensitization. Yes, I can say that word. And here's the thing. I know you were saying, like, it's not my cup of tea. I will just like to, if you're listening to this and you like true crime podcasts, inspect that a little bit. Like, what draws you to that? What keeps you engaged within that realm and that way of storytelling? Like, why is it that you like that? Not to say that, like, if you do it, you're bad. No. But... I think there's always room for like like what we're doing in this podcast. There's always room for interrogation. There's always room for critique. There's always room for questioning, especially yourself. Like, why did I react this way? Why am I engaged in such in such a specific way? Like, what are the reasons behind it? More often than not, they're rooted in white supremacy and misogyny. That is just point blank. End of story. More often than not, that is the case, especially if it's something that is next to or casually problematic in a way that we've all accepted something as as positive or as fun or as okay and acceptable more often than not it's rooted in those things and i do think it's important to critique that within yourself honestly and also you can like critique it and be like yes this is what this is and still consume it like mm -hmm. i mean we obviously do that with lots of things right yeah um but yeah just kind of like understanding i guess being critical of the things that you love is a huge part of it i want to dip back into this movie Mm -hmm. just in terms of its structure so i want to read um what Candyman says to uh helen in this sort of dream sequence where i think she's being transported to the hospital or like right after she escapes uh Candyman says your disbelief destroyed the faith of my congregation, so I was obliged to come. And then he asks, why do you want to live? If you would learn just a little from me, you would not beg to live. I am rumor. It is a blessed condition, believe me, to be whispered about at street corners, to live in other people's dreams, but not to have to be. Do you understand? 
I think that this is such a poignant and specific like key to the movie. Him saying I am rumor is literally the basis of the story. Like Candyman, and we'll, I I want to break it open a little bit more in the second one because it gives a little bit more context in the second mm-hmm. one too. Why Candyman? Why this image? And who that person is? But these stories have everything to do with perception and lineage, right? So like Candyman is the ethereal rumor of fear that is permeated through these generations of black folks that reminds them of the violence that whiteness just by way of existing exudes itself onto blackness. Like it is the rumor. It is, it is the, it is the hushed whispers of like, don't go over there. Do not trust them. Don't do this. Like, even the most well-intentioned white people just by proximity, like with Helen will get you killed, can get you killed and they will get off scot-free and you'll be dead. Like, so the candy man is this sort of reassuring whisper of fear, which is like scary and bad and terrifying, but like maintain some level of safety in this story because it's like the first candy man. I mean, he was a painter and a slave and, he was he was murdered. He was just straight up murdered by these racist ass fucking people. And that whispered lineage of trauma is like, hey, do not trust these people. Do not trust the system. The system actively works against black people. Do not trust this or any of this. So the idea that like he is rumor, Candyman is rumor, Candyman is is not really a person, but an idea. And that idea is white violence. Like it is the the hushed reiteration of of white violence in in all of its manifestations and all of its sort of manipulated forms of like well intention or like intentional maliciousness or or whatever it is. It is that thing. And him telling her this is like you are the one. You are it. I don't exist. I'm the rumor. I'm the thing trying to keep this community safe. You say that you're innocent, but no, you are the one doing this. You're the one causing this and you will become the legend that I am. You will be the face of the fear in the way that I'm currently the face of the fear. And I'm like, and then he says, like, it was always you. It was always right? you. That's like it was one of his last lines you. to you. Is, it was and, always you, Helen. And I love it because it's literally like, it was always you because it was always whiteness. It was always whiteness that's enacting this violence on us ever since the birth of America and sort of Western colonization. It was always you. And it is such a poignant, like, as a villain, as a scary character, I'm obsessed with the way that that plays out also every every line that Candyman says i wrote down because it was just it was a fucking masterpiece every word that he said was just like incredibly pointed and like almost poetic in what he was saying also his voice was terrifying the first time i heard it i was like fucking like i was had chills um but like when we first see him kind of like interact with her to to add to your point right the scene is like it's her face and she's just like looks content but you could tell she's like crying intensely and absolutely afraid even though her face said it's like she's content right so i thought that was just absolutely terrifying but he says um you doubted me so i had to come be my victim i am the writing on the wall the whisper in the classroom without these things i am nothing so now i must shed innocent blood come with me he's like this is here. This is like, what it is. Like the whis- it, even yeah. the the phrase "the whisper in the classroom," 
in like it is taught it is systemic it is intentional without these things i am nothing upholding white supremacy right and this like whiteness is nothing if it doesn't uphold itself in this way right um and i am a reminder of that history they try to erase and they try to sanitize i am a reminder that we are still unsafe like that's what he's saying about his community about blackness in general like I am here to remind you that it is not safe, that it has not changed very much. Like, I am the whisper of that trauma. I am the the hushed tone of reality for blackness in this country. Like, oh, it's so, so fucking poignant. And like, even like at the end when Helen does become Candyman, right? She becomes like, so her husband ends up marrying uh, his student and they're now in this apartment, and uh, Helen's dead. Cool. He whispers Helen's name in the mirror five times. She shows up. So she has become the rumor. She's become the fear. His memory of her is this traumatic memory of violence where she instilled all this stuff to him because, like, that's how he remembers her. So his memory, the trauma that he has sort of implanted in himself of his relationship with this person, Helen is now just rooted in violence and murder. So when he summons her, that is the, that is the history. That is the legacy of Helen in this. And I also do want to say, I initially hated that the entire community of Cabrini green showed up to Helen's funeral because it felt like, Oh, she's forgiven. And after I watched it. I spent some time with it and I rewatched that scene and I don't think it's that at all. I think I misinterpreted it because there is sort of a, like a thanks of like Anthony is safe and we appreciate that. But when that kid throws the hook into the, the grave, Mm -hmm. it did very much feel like you are the candy man. You caused this. You are literally what we were told to fear. This is your legacy. This is your legacy. This legacy of brutality, misfit, shout out. This legacy (laughs) of violence. And and it's crucial in the narrative that it's like even the most well-intentioned whiteness is violence in this community. She didn't mean to do any of this. She didn't mean to cause any harm. She was trying to do good, quote unquote. She was trying to shed light on a trauma, but it's not her space. It's not her place. It's also, not her community. Also, for it's her own her personal gain. For her own personal gain. And that ultimately is is it. And I think in that moment, them throwing the hook in the grave, it's a reminder of like, you caused this. What the fuck else did you think was going to happen? Like, your ignorance to the history of whiteness and white violence is what causes this. So even though you were well-intentioned, you did this. Well, and it's also interesting that when she's jumped by um, the young people in the bathroom, right, yeah. they kind of take on the symbolism of um, or like, you know, the monikers of the Candyman, right? With the yeah. hook, they beat her up with the hook, like what she's she's obviously trying to find this. And they're like, oh, yeah, you want this? It's right here. You want to see what this looks like? This is what this looks like. This is what this looks like for us. And at every point, she's like questioned, like even Anne Marie, who's like, what are you going to, oh, you're going to write about this? What are you going to say? We're gangbangers. We're drug addicts. We're this. Like, what What are you doing here? You don't belong here, you know? Literally, um, like, why? Why are you here? Is but, always the question. And even with her friend, I cannot get over how many times Bernadette was like, 
get away. We need to go. Why are we here? Please, let's leave. Hey, if not for that, I am uncomfortable. Can we go as a friend? Can you take me home? No, don't worry. She flips it and uses that misogyny to make to coax her into staying into doing something she's uncomfortable doing. Mm-hmm. Fucked up. I also want to talk about because um, I feel like it's important to both this film and the next one how urban legends are kind of morphed depending on who's like the community that's telling them. So uh, I'm going to go in order of kind of like who talks about them first. So the first time we hear about the Candyman is from a white kid, right? That uh, Bernadette is interviewing. Um, And he says like, oh, this girl was babysitting, cheated on her boyfriend with this bad boy, lost her, was going to lose her V card and said, Candyman five times in the mirror. And then, uh, like, so the guy downstairs was waiting for sex. She uh, she was going to give it to him. Ha- like, she was possessed by the devil or whatever to, like, say Candyman. And then she ended up dying. And so did the baby. And, oh, my God, right? Kind of, like, within white culture, like, losing your virginity and, like, cheating on your boyfriend and stuff is bad. So, like, that you deserve this kind of punishment, right? Um, so then... The next time that we hear somebody talk about it, it's black women, right? It's the the janitors and then um, Anne-Marie, where they talk about her being killed in the bathtub, right? And how, like, he was coming through the walls and they called 911 and nobody answered and nobody came, like, and it just, it just happened, right? And so that's, like, that's factual. This is their experience. This is what happened. Nobody was there to help or save them. It just happens literally for no reason, like, we didn't even know if she ever said Candyman in the mirror or anything, right? They, It's just, you are not even safe in your home. Yeah. Um, and then the next time we hear the legend of Candyman talked about, it's from the white professor who talks about um, can- the original Candyman being a slave, right? And how... It's okay, though, because he was rich, because his dad designed this machine, and he grew up in, quote-unquote, polite society. Um, So he had wealth, position, power, and all of this, despite the fact that he's still talking about a slave, right? So he's already discredited the fact that um, he was a son of a slave, right? Um, Because we don't really hear or see any sort of mention about that because it's it's assumed that he is able to move in the world in the same in a similar way to how white people do at that point because he's going to colleges he's more privileged right and then he talks about how like that then he was commissioned to capture the virginal beauty again of um of a woman and then he fucked her and she got pregnant and then she went and cried and then he died right so that's another white man talking about a woman losing her virginity to somebody or willing to give up her virginity to somebody in an unfaithful sort of way so like the first one the woman dies and in this one obviously he dies um so then the next time we hear about it is from the black boy right from jake who says like I can't say anything about Candyman or he's going to get me. It's not safe around here. And then when he talks about his story of the Candyman, it's a little boy went to the bathroom over here and like his mom was checking out in the store and then they hear screams. A tough guy runs in and it turns out his penis was chopped off. And if you ask me, you're better off dead. So the young man is like saying that if I don't have a dick, I'm nothing. I can't like they're also putting forth patriarchy as like a big player in this story too right so it's i found it really interesting how each group talked about it and what the story was because it was never the same yeah um, which is 
so paramount to the idea of Candyman because he is the embodiment of fear. So each one of these retellings is a projection of that personal fear, no matter what it is. And oftentimes, especially in our society, those fears are rooted very specifically in misogyny and anti-blackness. And for men, it's this idea of a loss of masculinity, a loss of power, subconsciously a loss of power because of the privilege of power in a in a male-dominated society. So that's why that's, like, popping up for these characters. And then the idea of, like, controlling women also subjugated in that way, where it's like, oh, well, if if I can't control her sex, her power, her this, her that, like, if I can't control her, she's nothing. And that's the fear, is like, oh, well, she was a virgin, so she deserved to die. She wanted to have sex, so she deserved to die. Like, it is the projection of these internalized fears, and a lot of those fears are rooted in misogyny and patriarchy which is what like it is so i love that too because that's also just a bigger conversation about i mean obviously i don't i love the way that it is discussed here i don't love <laughs> that <laughs> you know what i mean i love the way that I it's just portrayed love that in the it's, movie it's something different to each person and yeah. i think that also really plays like this idea plays well into the next one until yeah. what they have to say about Candyman and how there isn't just one yes. um the lineage oh the lineage right and yeah just like what is the ultimate bad what can cause them to like have to die and it for white women it is you know proximity to white women first of all right and for black women it's just existing it's like nothing is safe (laughs) you know um it's also it's also uh, like within that same conversation especially between bernadette and uh helen and marie Oh, um, between the context of like these two black women, Bernadette and Anne Marie, it is a fear of not being believed or heard mm-hmm. or listened to. Right. Like Bernadette isn't heard by her friend Helen, even though they have this bond, they're friends. She is not being seen by her friend. And secondarily, when she meets Anne Marie, Anne Marie is like, please go away. You do not belong here. I'm trying to raise a family. Please get out. And she's like, I can help. And she's like, no, you can't go away. <laughs> like. And Helen doesn't listen. It's not being believed or listened to or like mm-hmm. being seen by folks because, again, whiteness erases blackness a lot most of the time. And just that phrase, I want to dip into the way that the white characters do talk about blackness in this movie, specifically with like we'd already discussed how Helen was like, oh, I'm so enlightened because I'm making this comment about how I was abused. And suddenly the cops are there and they find the guy. But all these black people get killed and nary a sound was heard or a sign was heard and she gets the wrong guy she picks the wrong guy which um was very subtle and yeah a very oh yeah oh yeah but and then also i this also dips into my i will get into it remind me the casting of black actors as cops or as heads of police forces it's into that same trope which i have such a huge problem with but the way that the uh professor was talking about that history you had said the way he's presenting the story of this original man who became the Candyman lore, he was rich, he was wealthy. It's anything but saying he wasn't black, right? Like, well, he was privileged, he had money, he had this. It is the erasure of blackness and kind of saying like, oh, well, he was just a regular person. like. But he was a slave, don't forget. Yeah. He was a slave. But 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 it's trying to erase the blackness of that person by saying, oh, well, they they had it okay like even though they were a slave they were privileged they were this they were that and it is just the erasure of blackness in this way Mm -hmm. so all of the white peripheral narratives within this film 
advocate for actively the erasure of blackness. And the and I thought that literal that was such erasure of blackness, right? Literal because erasure like, of blackness, yeah. Once he's there, like they just murder him. Oh, you don't belong here. Boom, done, yeah. right? I, I just thought that that was excellent as far as like, constructing that within to the into the into the dialogue into the narrative like very specifically that's what's happening we're gonna make sure like you know it just it was oh i i'm obsessed but going back to my thing about i i really do have a problem with casting black actors as police officers or police chiefs in movies because i do think in this one it does seem intentional because it seems like helen She's like, I'm doing a good thing. See, the cop is black. So I'm not racist because he is black. Like there is there is a a relief in that fact for her. It seems mm-hmm. that like I'm doing the right thing by telling them what's happening, even though that system actively and concertedly subjugates black folks and black black communities and communities of color, enacts violence on them on such a regular basis. That is sort of the system that it as has created. But because the cop is black, she feels safety. She feels goodness. She's like, oh, well, I'm I'm doing the right thing here. And it, she's not. She's just causing more violence because of her her purveyorship, her voyeurism, her like her need to put herself in this place um, as what she would consider herself a white ally or a white savior. Like that's her whole deal. But just in general, that trope of casting black folks as cops it bums me out it feels like an intentional way to undermine the conversation of police brutality against blackness and black communities and communities of color in general because it's like well in media if we're perceiving like oh well well they're black so it's not that if that's like largely the consumption of cops on television or cops in media there's going to be a sanitization of that conversation and kind of sweeping it under the rug a little bit because it's like, well, he's black, so whatever. It's the same derogatory, meaningless shrugging off of white supremacy by saying something like, well, I have a black friend. It's the same misleading, intentionally naive perspective. And I think I think it's intentional. I think it's very real. I think it is such a choice to do that to negate the conversations of police brutality against black communities. And it makes me so fucking mad every time because it is so pervasive. It is so frequent. It is such a regular part of movies where cops are involved or at least one of them, or at least somebody in position of power who is in within some sort of cop like position is black. And it is a way to actively hush those conversations because of perception Mm-hmm. And which goes back to the movie, the perception of blackness, of of aid, like, ah, there's just, oh, this movie is so <laughs> rife and like potent with this conversation. This movie is this conversation. The movie itself, like there isn't a, a moment in this movie that doesn't follow or at least actively magnify that conversation. Absolutely. I think this, this movie, I mean, both, this one and the next one are a tight like 90 minutes oh yeah and just so incredibly poignant and thoughtful and well-paced and um every line of dialogue is excellent every scene is excellent even like the five minutes that you get of like the credits before the movie starts where it's like the street and you know we see like the parallels between this and this and it is so good the music so good philip glass incredible did a great job right and 
I think this movie also does a really good job at we're, we're talking about white supremacy and um, I think it does a really good job at showing how patriarchy itself like um, works to uphold and normalize white supremacy too, especially um, with uh, white women, mm-hmm. right? Because like a big reason why she's like going into and diving into all of these things is because she's not taken seriously by men. And a lot of the time they're telling her what to do. They um, tell her where not to go. And she's like being gaslit by everybody. So she's trying to, you know, be like, no, look, I'm important. No, look, I'm not afraid. No, look, I can do all of the things. Right. Not realizing that she has um, this white privilege within that, even though she is, you know, a woman and is still lesser than men in this society. Right. Like her husband, um, our first introduction to him is we we know that she's doing this thesis on urban legends, right? And he's actively like telling his students like, these are all rumors. Um, these stories are modern oral folklore, uh, the unconscious fears of an urban society. And then he's like, uh, she calls him on it. She's like, hey, you said you were going to wait until my thesis was done. I'm almost done. He's like, yeah, but you can't expect me to hold off on this because the kids need to hear this. Like, and he's just being an asshole, right? So she's being undermined there with her thesis, which is what like, you know, her her biggest project as a grad student. Then like, he's also in the same breath saying like, oh, but I'm not cheating on you. You don't think that, right? That's stupid. When clearly he is. And then there's the condescending professor at dinner, right? Who's like trying to be like, oh, well, I want to review your work. Like, I can give you some direction here. I've already done this. You're actually already replicating work that I've already done. So let me, uh, let me help you. Um, then there's, uh, the men in the ghetto, right, who are catcalling her and following her, who are saying, like, you can't come up here, follows them, and then they beat her up for not complying, right? I mean, like, obviously. But, like, that is still showing that she does need to fear blackness and black men, right? Uh, And then even the Candyman himself, where he makes her think that she doesn't have a choice because she needs to fear him and this choice is inevitable and... Because, like, there's this, this this whole thing about, like, how he, like, just manipulates her and does all of this where she's in a space that she should absolutely not be. Absolutely. But at any time, she could stop. At any time, she could just, like, fucking walk away and not be a part of it. But she's participating in this because she's not supposed to. Because she's trying to, quote, unquote, like, push barriers. But by doing so, she is literally just harming entire communities harming herself harming everybody that's like literally in her life like everybody that's close to her dies like her best friend her husband who's trash but all of that works to normalize and create a quote-unquote need for white supremacy in my opinion with well it's also a, a kind of opening of a discussion of like capitalist feminism and white feminism as it pertains to capitalism because that is the key factor in this is wanting that status wanting the approval wanting to be in charge of this like what would these men do if they were in this position that should not be the conversation but because of patriarchal standards and misogyny i understand why she's saying that in this context and that is the insidious nature of capitalism in this way where it convinces you that these are you have to do these things when you don't and like it what an interesting conversation and like even at that that the dinner thing that or dinner thing the dinner conversation (laughs) when he's trying to like gatekeep black history and black trauma from her 
Well, like, like neither one of them should be doing this at all or telling this story. But even in this space of whiteness, the conversation devolves into just gatekeep and misogyny where he's like, she's like, oh, have you heard of this? He's like, yeah, I wrote a paper about it about 10 years ago. Like, have you even read that? It's like he owns the story. He owns the trauma. Mm -hmm. And she is so far beneath him. She is so stupid and so small and so little for even considering trying to do something that he quote unquote has already done and already owns it is Mm -hmm. ownership in this system like so even where we're seeing very clearly in this way him being an absolute piece of shit misogynist and trying to belittle her for wanting to take a piece of the pie that he owns the entirety of that pie is black trauma and black history that they're trying to fucking keep like what is the what that's so it's so poignant and so clear and like fucking gross oh my god there's no other way to put it it's disgusting it's just just gross yeah and that's all of these systems capitalism uh patriarchy white supremacy (sighs) they all work together to uphold this and to create these um bullshit like arguments or excuses as to why they are necessary and why they should exist when when we look at like when we look at it what are you gatekeeping? Why are you doing this? This is not you. This is not your history. Why Why do you, are you claiming ownership over this? Why, like, there's so many whys to anything having to do with any of these things. Like, it's, yeah. but I think that this, this story really does a great job at showing how interconnected they all are, how gross it is, and that nobody benefits from it. We, we see, nobody. like, literally, like, even like innocent bystanders, even like, I mean, Anthony, the, the most innocent of them all, the baby is taken, yeah. right? And it's taken because the white woman doesn't believe in the Candyman, right? Or like she wears this cross. So obviously she believes in like God or a higher power, right? But she does not believe in like evil or in other sorts of things that you can't see other sorts of faiths right so this is her discrediting everything that isn't her own faith right and that gets a child who has literally done nothing kidnapped like and almost burned alive it's it's such a good movie like at the end of it all the conversation about intersectionality as it pertains to whiteness and blackness and and misogyny like just that conversation of unchecked and unexamined oneness, the oneself, like how do you exist in these spaces intersectionally? Like your whiteness precludes all other in this system, but there is that active, like, but I'm a woman and I'm trying to do these things. And that is where some of like, I love using the word insidious. That's where the insidiousness of that thought of that belief comes into play because even though, yes, that is true, this other thing is also true. So even though you are being harmed, you're causing harm to others. And that is the toxicity of this system, of this badness. It is this reiterative, unchecked fucking spewing of trauma onto each other because it constantly and will continue to try to uphold and maintain whiteness and maleness and masculinity as the stature, as the structure, as the pinnacle placement boss of white supremacist capitalism. Ugh, disgusting. I think it's a very well-intentioned movie. I think it's a very clear discussion about white violence. Um, fucking fantastic. 
I don't really have any other points. I mean, well, even like all of the people that die in in this film are white, except for Bernadette, who is in who is like has assimilated to like white culture, well, right? Where she yeah. she is so far removed from like the black culture that we're talking about in this movie that. Like she is scared, yes, and she's like, no, we we don't belong here. But she still participates in whiteness to the point to where she's like, okay, fine, let's go to the apartment. Okay, fine, here, and she's enabling that rather than standing her ground and like, and saying, no, this isn't for you. Yeah, it's it is a it's a conversation of like class privilege uh, as it pertains to class and race. Just in these terms, like, yes, she is black, so she exists through this through the world as black, but she is also privileged and assumedly wealthy or well, like she has money. She is, she is not poor. Where I feel like a lot of this other discussion about like the projects and stuff, that's a class discussion. That is poverty, obviously racially motivated and racially segregated poverty that is intentional to move blackness or people of color out of white spaces and to intentionally keep people poor but it is more of a conversation of class yeah they double down on that kind of narrative in the next one with um with a conversation of gentrification yeah exactly yes Um, i have so like i'm so excited to talk about that art critic like that whole shit I'm excited about the whole it's fucking fuck. movie. It's gonna fuck. Oh my and god! And this this really did lay such a good foundation for the next movie because everything yeah. I was saying it just doubled down on and like really brought it to life in a new, fun, interesting way. Yeah, that I'm very 100%. excited to talk about it. One hundred percent. Let's do the. Let's do it. While entertaining at a party, up-and-coming artist Anthony McCoy encounters the story of Helen Lyle, a graduate student who went on a killing spree near Cabrini Green in the early 1990s. Using this story as inspiration for his next exhibit, Anthony roams the old projects looking for artistic inspiration. During this visit, Anthony meets a laundromat owner named Billy Burke who informs him of the origins of the Candyman story. Moved by this history, Anthony includes Mir in his exhibition, instructing viewers to say his name five times. After the show, the gallery owner and his girlfriend are brutally murdered, and interest in Anthony's work skyrockets due to his proximity to the trauma. As several more murders take place, including the death of an art critic and a group of high school teenagers, Anthony paints a series of unknown faces in a hallucinatory stupor. A beasting that has grown severely grotesque leads Anthony to the hospital, where he discovers he was not born on the south side like he thought. He goes to visit his mom, who informs him that he was the baby from the Cabrini Green incident. Disillusioned, Anthony wanders the row of Cabrini Green projects, worried about his well-being. Anthony's girlfriend, Brianna Cartwright, goes looking for him. She finds him in an abandoned church where Billy Burke has him strapped to a chair and recounts the legend of Candyman. He then cuts Anthony's arm off and shoves a hook into his socket, proclaiming the return of the elusive myth. In the final standoff, Brianna kills Billy, and Anthony is killed by the police. The police try to frame Brianna for the murders when she decides to summon the newly instated Candyman. Anthony saves her and demands that she tells everyone he has returned. And he has become the legend. And it's a full circle moment because he is the baby from the first one. That blew my mind because you don't find that. Like, because you don't. I mean, it's not revealed until like the third act that he is the child from uh, from the first one. And I was like, 
holy shit i like paused it i had a freak out moment i think i texted you eric and was like oh my god yeah we i am so excited to talk about this holy shit holy shit holy shit what a good story this it's is a, it's like such a fantastic uh reprisal of the myth but also a really fantastic sequel first and foremost i love that they open the story with being like have you heard the myth about helen <laughs> Well, and they like, say Candyman, right? Oh, yeah. They they, they say so, Candyman, that she is the Candyman. Like, it's a story about her, at least in this context. The myth has now... She has become the immortal legend, like he said. So, yeah, so they, they recount the story of Helen, but instead of, like, the first one kind of, like, frames it when you're not looking at it critically, I guess, as, like, a oh, she's, she's the hero of this story when she's clearly not and whatever. But, um... So it's talking about like she killed a lot of people and she was going to sacrifice the baby, but the people saved her and she walked into the fire. Right. So like it's like morphed a little bit as like legends do. And like, you know, through like this, um, the oral retelling of what this is. Um, And then like the um, Billy Burke's version is directly related to cops this time. Right. So this is another version of the Candyman story that we're getting where it's talking about um, it's just an old guy that liked candy that had a hook for a hand and gave kids candy. And then suddenly a white girl gets razor blades in the candy and he disappears because he's worried everybody's going to think that it was him. And then he was hiding in the walls and he's like, that's when I saw the true face of fear. And like, I was like, oh, this is because you're terrified, right? But then like the cops storm the fucking building because he screams. He screams because he's he's scared right now. The cops waiting outside come in, fucking run in after him, swarm him, kill him right there on the spot, right? And he like watches this happen and sees like his face as he's being murdered and then more razor blades show up the next day and it turns out he was innocent surprise right like easy to blame and kill the black person for this yeah it's it is a great story beat just in terms of the way that explaining the history of of white violence against black folks just i mean specifically like somebody like emmett till like you're getting Mm -hmm. that history of white people enacting violence just for the sake of violence against black people it's just i love that this movie at its core is like a story based in representation and perception and sort of lineage in history right like i know that those are all kind of like vague words but it is the interpretation of one's own history and their their place in it like the overarching story of Candyman, as we've discussed is like the idea of fear and the retelling of story as a way to maintain safety, uh, I mean, I largely maintain maintain safety from white violence. That was the whole conversation about the first one. But I like that it goes even further, just in terms of an individual level, with Anthony, where his entire story is perception based. Like, how is he being perceived by those around him? Like, am I a bad son? Am I a bad artist? Am I a bad partner? Uh, like, am I being misrepresented? And that fear of misrepresentation leads to these bad things, right? Like he wants to be this good artist, but is ultimately a hack, not a perceived hack. as perceived as a, a hack, hack by or whiteness, as, right? And so he's hoping that like using this story as a way to like incite some feeling or some spark will like 
get that going. But even then, it doesn't work. Like, those paintings are bad, and it's very on the nose. It's not great. It's not interpretive. And it, it like, his first response, his initial response to when he hears that the gallery owner, his partner's business partner, somebody she's very close to, died uh, at the gallery that he had a show in, he's he's excited because the newscaster said his name. And he can't like, stop smiling. And he can't stop smiling. Mm-hmm. His... It, it is all based in that perception and like what lineage is he going to leave behind? What What is he going to say about the world and what are people going to remember that he said about the world? How is his lineage going to affect the future? That's what he needs. That's what he wants. In the same way that like Helen did that to some degree, how are people going to see her? How is she with this thesis? How is she going to shape the way that she is perceived within the world and what she has to say about it in her time here? And it is all ego-driven. It is all self-determined. I must exist. I must leave a staple here. And that has to just play into the lineage of like, in this movie, we also get more of the history of the Candyman and how it's not just one person. It is so many other people in this history of white violence against black people. So just having those two levels of like historical bigger picture context for lineage and then this more very specific narrative structure within Anthony's story specifically about lineage, about perception and representation within his life. And I like that um, he is connecting to his own very personal history that he doesn't even realize is his personal history through art. Like yeah. he's painting these faces and he doesn't know why. And you uh, mentioned it briefly, but um, one of the big truths that we learn about Candyman in this is it's not just one person. It's it's a whole hive right um which you know the candy man and bees and the whole thing right like but how it's supposed to protect them from cops and from white people right it's violence became a ritual a survival tool to protect itself from violence which is like just this whole thing i think is really interesting and really like what did it say candy man is how we deal with the fact that these things happen and that they're still happening yeah so i think it's super, super interesting. And we also see um, Brianna at the end, like invoke Candyman's name in order to save herself, right, from the cops, from white people and all of that. And we see it come full circle where what she feared originally turned out to be the only thing that could save her in this moment. Um, what an interesting juxtaposition, too, specifically with the way that Helen invokes Candyman versus the way that Brianna invokes yes. Candyman. And it has everything to do with whiteness and ego. Because Helen is doing it for the sake of her reputation and for the sake of herself alone, not her community, not her family, nobody but herself. Whereas Brianna, it is for her safety, sure, but it's also for the safety of her loved ones. I mean, her brother's dead. Her brother's Mm -hmm. Candyman. But everyone else, like, she's going to be frank. It's going to be spun as this whole other thing that had nothing to do with them, really. And the cops are going to make it look like just a nut like it, it's this history the perception of what is actually happening is going to be so grotesquely misrepresented so she is doing it for the sake of community not for the sake of self very clearly and i'm obsessed so i i want to go back to um anthony's art right So the art piece that he creates is this mirror on a wall. And what I thought was incredibly interesting about this, because we're also talking about white supremacy and all of this, right, is it's a mirror. Like, and white people are there 
just looking at it and not engaging with the art. We're talking about um, performative activism and that whole conversation where they're just looking at this and they're not looking any deeper. They're just looking to see what's on the surface and look, it's me. Okay, fine. And they walk away. But he has to encourage the, the critic to open the medicine cabinet, right? To interact with the piece rather than just observe it, which is exactly what Helen was doing, right? Where she was just kind of observing and trying to participate, not knowing what she was doing or how to participate. She was just doing all of these things for herself. So the critic opens it. And then when you open the medicine cabinet, behind there are all of his pieces that he did of Candyman, right? And uh, it's got like some lighting stuff. Um, It's really, really interesting and really cool, especially going back to the original um, Candyman where we're talking about like the murderer came in through the medicine cabinet to kill Ruthie, right? When he talks about it, he's like encouraging people to engage with this, with his history, right? To understand this. And he talks about, he says that this piece is to align the moment in time when things exist in the same space, calibrate tragedy lineage now. And it's just... Again, I thought it was really cool because white women don't engage with the work. They only see the surface. They only see what is a reflection of themselves. Yeah. Um, Well, it's, I mean, A, what he says there, I love because it's the crux of the story of the movie. It's a, it's a nice little like homage to the, what the movie's about. Like he, it's the mission statement. It's the mission statement of the film, which obsessed little chef's kiss love, but truly in something like this, I mean, I know that it's kind of. This artistic piece could be read as certain ways in the movie. It's read as kind of hack and kind of bad and 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 uh, fairly meaningless or fairly surface because um, it is observed by white people. Yes, because it's and observed by, people, by whiteness and his girlfriend, who is of a different of like a higher class. Yeah, right? I mean, I mean, there there is a level of at least with the paintings when she's like, it's a little first thought. I, in my head, I'm like, I mean, it really, it's like he thought of the story the day of and then was like, I'm going to paint a trauma painting. And it's like, sure, I love it. I think the mirror was more interesting than the paintings themselves. But that idea, again, the perception, it's all about perception. So for, for most white people, all whiteness, rather, the perception is like, oh, look at me. This is me. I'm doing fine. I'm doing the best I can. That is it. But there's never really an analysis of what's behind that, what brought you there, and how you move with that okayness. Like, your okayness, your acceptance of yourself in this way, or or not acceptance, whatever, the way that you exist, there's not really an examination of how that existence is reactive and reacts to everybody around you and how it interacts with other spaces, because almost every space is designed for whiteness and for white people, so perceiving your perception of that in the mirror has way less meaning than anybody else who is non-white. What I thought was really interesting was how everybody kept shitting on his work and saying that he was only there because of his girlfriend, right? Um, and everybody that was critiquing it was white or was higher class, right? So we get the white curator who wants him to do black guy art of the future, Okay, well, cool. Like, but let's let's move past that. And He's, Anthony's talking about wanting to do pieces on like white supremacy and creating spaces f- of neglect for people of color. Like, you know, like he has this whole mission statement that he's talking about and the white curator literally starts correcting him about white supremacy to try to distance himself from that idea. But in doing that, he's reinforcing that he is a part of the problem and a part of white supremacy. And he could give a shit less about what he's trying to say. And 
as again white person doesn't understand what's happening and then there's the girlfriend who doesn't want to come see his work makes him come to her tells him he's too literal even though she looks at this and sees pain right which is kind of what he's trying to convey but that's uncomfortable to her because she's removed from that right then we have the white critic who is saying your work is cliche your kind are the pioneers of gentrification of the gentrification cycle and he's like what excuse me what do you mean and she's like artists artists take up space for the poor people so they don't have to get a day job and i was like wait so why are you even in this like you as a white woman critiquing art who clearly you hate artists like why are you here doing this and why are you shitting on literally fucking everybody right now which this this movie does have a lot to say about gentrification which i want to get into later but like all of these people are just like no this is trash no this is trash no this is trash um until the murder happens right where the one who was like super upholding white supremacy not even on like a trying to hide it uh the curator guy he dies and then the white critic is like, oh, my God, your work is eternal. What's next? I want a solo show on Candyman when she like the n- night before was like criticizing it and all of this. And he's like, oh, that's great. You like you like this piece now. Uh, why don't you go say his name? Why don't you engage with the work? You don't want to engage with the work. Say his name. Say his name in the mirror. Right. And he's like trying to get her to see past that like surface level of interest right and he's like he just really wants people again to engage with his work like he's begging for it even though people want to see it they don't want to engage with it the narrative choice in people being excited about it once it's like attributed or associated with death going back to what we're talking about about true crime podcasts and the obsession with true crime it is the purveyorship and sort of connoisseurship of trauma Um, from a white perspective, which goes back into the ownership of trauma that people like to maintain and uphold. And I can take this and see it and hold it and use it and have it. Um, Not to like help or do anything with it. It's just like, I just want to own this. Like it's an obsession with that. And I think the conversation about the gentrification, the the only reason she's saying that is to distance herself from her whiteness. Because instead of acknowledging how white supremacy plays entirely a part in gentrification and the re rezoning, reconfiguring cityscapes as they exist, it has everything to do with whiteness and privilege and money. And oftentimes those with money are white people because in this system, whiteness is rewarded. And so she, as this like highfalutin, high thinking art critic who sees things big air quotes as they are is trying to rebuke her whiteness by erasing his blackness in this way where it's like no you're not who you are you're gentrifier you're the one who came in here and did this you're the one who changed the landscape and it's like that has nothing to do with him it's her trying to erase his blackness in the same way that the conversation in the last one when they're at dinner they're trying to hold and it like so that whole conversation was about the first candy man right where oh but he's of privilege oh but he's from a wealthy family oh but it looks like he is all of these things that negate like that 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 should be acceptable and like oh well he is autonomous because whatever no he was black and he was enslaved Mm -hmm. you're ignoring the most crucial part which is exactly what she's doing in this she is not acknowledging his blackness and she's actively trying to erase it by projecting her whiteness onto him and saying 
you're actually the problem. You're the one who came in here and changed everything. You're the one who gentrified the area because you are an artist and you're the one who doesn't want to get a real job and participate in capitalism. You're the issue. She's actively trying to erase him and his black history, his black existence, and the experience of being black in that society. That is what she's doing. And that's why she's doing it, because she's an asshole participant in white capitalism. Disgust. Obsessed with the connection of that and how she tries to do that. And then on top of that, giving that character such an interest in the beholding and the sort of ownership of trauma and of Mm -hmm. black trauma. Well, not black trauma, but like in this case, just the ownership of trauma she feeds on it that is like i'm obsessed with that character the -hmm. way that she is portrayed because of these reasons and the way that it calls back to the first one in the same conversation of privilege wealth and whiteness as opposed to blackness it's just Mm -hmm. it's such an eloquent thing and then even and then they talk about class uh, too so like there's a line where it's like um and 100% 100% true. White people built the ghetto and then erased it when they realized what oh, they did. Right. Obsessed. And yeah. they're talking about this. It's in the very beginning of the movie. It's Anthony. It's his girlfriend. It's her brother. It's her brother's boyfriend. Right. And the brother's boyfriend literally points out she's like talking about this. She's like, yeah, they cut off the community. They did the whole thing. And then he's like, yeah, but you live here. You are participating in this. And it's this uncomfortable moment that hangs for a minute because she is removed from that socially and like privileged wealth wise, right? That she, because she's not white, she's trying to excuse her participation in it. Yes. Which is yes. super interesting because it's, we had that care, we had Bernadette in the first one, you know, so it's like mirroring that and her experience, but going deeper into that, which I think and is it's, great. It's such a great way to further the conversation in regards to class and race and the way that it's, it's, it's a participation in these systems which is which is almost inescapable in this way oh, like it, absolutely. there's no but there is a recognition and a cognizance that i think individually we have to have in the way that we participate in these things and the way we actively harm communities of wherever like we have to recognize and, and that's and that's the whole point of like the critique and the breakdown especially like as us two white people having these conversations discussing how our whiteness precluding all other things queerness uh feminist whatever it is how our existence in this system that is designed for us largely and the way that we exist how we have to be aware of that how we have to like examine that and critique it and understand that like it just is and it's not like well, I not me. It's like, yes, you. Yes, all of you. Yes, everybody. Like that mm-hmm. concept of like, well, I, I'm different. It's like, no, you're not. You're not different at all. You are literally the thing, the reason you exist in this. That's why I like this this more difficult conversation that the movie brings up about gentrification and the way that the gay brothers kind of like, um, hey, wasn't this like the projects? And now it's the gentrified complex with all these like Mm -hmm. gorgeous fucking apartments and if we're looking at this story specifically where she starts versus where she ends she starts in this gorgeous beautiful apartment with this power with this privilege with all of these things and with opportunity right like when they go to that dinner and I, i forget what museum it is but one of the curators is like hey you should call us like we would love to have you in new york like 
come to New York. Like you will have a job. We think you're so talented and so successful. So she has this limitless opportunity because of what she worked for and what she's done. But, but it turns yeah. out that it's all because of death. It's because they know that her father unalived himself. It's because yes. her boyfriend is now connected to this murder Which, and they want to bring that in. They're telling her, break the system from the inside. That's what we're doing, right? But like truly what they want her to bring is trauma and her trauma. And and, and that is further Even in the her conversation. Brother. Her brother it- is trying to get her to like, because her dad was an artist who unalived himself. He's trying to get her to have a show of her father's art pieces. She watched her dad fucking like, he's like, hey, I can fly. And he fucking jumped out the window. Yeah. So to like negate that and to try to be like, yeah, but but bring dad here. Do this. So it's it's not because she's worked for it. It's like it doesn't seem like. And it's because of her relationship to trauma. I think it's both. I think there is that level of like, yes, she like obviously did work for it. But it is like even in these spaces of blackness, there still is the purveyorship of trauma. Like bring it here and let's let us have that like let us use that let us use that for capital gain let us use that to sell tickets or to invoke patronage like let's let's use Mm -hmm. that so even even though despite that that sort of insidious context just looking at it from where she starts with that opportunity with that wealth with this privilege of 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 capital of of creativity of connectedness at the end of this movie she is still black and it's very yes. clear and a reminder yes. of despite where you come from, how you've existed, how much money you have, we still live in a white supremacist state. We still live in a system that benefits or, 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 or rewards whiteness above all else. So at the end of the day, no matter where she was in her life, no matter what opportunities befell her or, or were in her future, she is still black in this system in that cop car, in handcuffs, being framed for the murder of her brother and this other man. Life nearly ruined because she is black and black alone. That had nothing else to do with anything apart from her being black. And Mm -hmm. I just think that is such like a, I mean, apart from everything else this movie says, boom, boom, so sick, obsessed. Can we talk about the white curator real quick? Oh yeah, okay, so just from a horror perspective, just from a horror perspective, that death, was so fucking it was incredible cool. okay i love some of the things that they uh they changed about Candyman in general in this yeah. or like the lore or how he exists in the world where it's through reflection and shadow and i fucking ate it up and the bees yeah. on the other side of mirror and then the bees on this side of the mirror like Ooh. just all of these things that were so good and so well thought out I like that he's really the only white person that we see behind closed doors other than the um, the white curator. And he and the intern are hanging out. And I don't know if it's his girlfriend or his fuck buddy or whatever, but like he's clearly in a position of power and using that over this this girl. And it's very, very, very clear there. They have this like huge toxic relationship. And she's like, oh, well, you know, should we say his name? Should we do this? And he's like, don't say his name until we fuck because I don't want you to die yet. But you know what? Necrophilia has always been on my bucket list. But like he doesn't say it in like a sassy way. He says it in a matter of fact, very gross, very literal way. Like there's no like it's not like a gray area or even like not that it's like would ever be like a cute fun like foreplay kind of 
talk or whatever but like it's very clear that he's like oh yeah I've always wanted to fuck a dead person go ahead do it I'll fuck you I don't care that's what you're here for and she acknowledges that hey you're no good for me but she still participates in it and then when she she says his name and then they both die and I'm just like damn her neck looked rough oh my god I did look away I was in, yeah it was it was it looked really, really real and like real bad. Yeah. Like it was so well done. It was so well done. This movie is great. This movie is fantastic. I was so pleased. I thought it was good. I, cause I'd heard some mixed reviews on it from some people. Um, just, I forget who I'd heard it from. Maybe I just like heard it on a podcast or like heard it elsewhere, but some people were just like, yeah, like the, the narrative parallels to like, uh, Black Lives Matter and like police brutality were a little ham-fisted. And in my head, I'm just like, no, this was all, this is already there in the very first movie. This was like, this was the story from the get go. Like to me, that response is just a white reactionary, like, oh, well it was a little too much. Like we get it. It's for white. I just... Yeah, I didn't like that. Yeah. And I wonder if because if people haven't watched the first one and they just assume that this is a remake, that like they don't have the context of the first one. So I it wonder if that. our perception is a little bit skewed because of that. But I this yeah. is really one because I mean, the title is misleading because it's just Candyman. But I mean, that also plays into the idea that there isn't just one. It is this is something that lives on and many people take on this persona. And this is a legend that like continues to um, to persist because, you know, of whiteness and white supremacy and all of that. But yeah, I like that it's the same title. And I think this one just doubles down on that and um, and shows a different side of that and is a little bit more pointed, which is necessary. I think if you're going to make a film like this, you can't be like, oh, well, but I don't know. Like you have to address these things and you have to do it. I think I think it just did it really well. So agreed. Yeah, I'm I'm really impressed with this movie. I think it's great. I think the story of Candyman is so cool. The first one is fantastic. This one's fantastic. There's a lot of other movies in this. There's like a sequel. How many candy movies? There's Candyman, 1992, Candyman, Farewell to the Flesh, 1995, Candyman, Day of the Dead, 1999, and then Candyman, uh, 2021. So there's two other movies in the franchise. Oh, I wonder if they're bad. I mean, they probably are. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know, but it's interesting. It's very interesting, yeah. Okay. I yeah. I definitely. It does look like some of the same actors are in it. So I at least Candyman's the same, which is cool. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Was Candyman a book? Yeah. It was based on. Yeah, it's based on a novella by Clive Barker. Yes. Entitled "The Forbidden." Yeah. So I definitely want to read that, and then uh, also, at least the synopsises of the sequel, the '90s sequels. I mean, I'm here for this. Yeah. Wow. Cool. What what a good fucking set of movies. We're back and uh let's talk about it. Eric. Let's yes. The first one. Yes. The first Candyman. Um who was it for? I think that that movie I don't know. 
because on its on its surface it's like a nice horror film but subtextually it's way more of a critical think piece about race and blackness in america so yeah i'd say maybe like i think it's just for america i think it's like it's really hard because i feel like fuck it it's for everybody watch it like you should just watch it because it's like if you don't want to think about it too much, you can get a cool, scary story out of it. But it is a very intentional, very critical look at these really big and intense subjects and very important subjects. And so at that level, I think it's for everybody. I think everybody should watch it and spend some time thinking about it. Yeah, I think so. I think the same thing. It's hard to narrow it down because it literally does feel like just something that everybody should watch yeah and sit and think on um Mm -hmm. did you like it i loved it i thought it was fantastic i thought it was way better than i thought it was going to be not that i like thought it was going to be bad but i I thought it was going to be cool and then it ended up being this fantastic film i I just thought i was like so immersed so impressed um i loved it did you like it i loved it There was not a moment where I was bored, where I felt like the movie didn't know what it was trying to do. Every scene, every line of dialogue, every uh, shot and the way it was shot was just so incredible and intentional and it just drew me in. And I was so impressed that this was 90 minutes and it was so rich and so complete and there were no crappy loose ends. There was like... There was never a point where they tried to say something and didn't follow through or where they had an opportunity to say something and didn't. Like, I feel like it was just such a good, intentional movie. I really, really, really liked it. Yeah. Oh so my God, good. I think I like horror now. <laughs> I'm excited for you. Who am I, I? I want, I would love to do more horror films. Who am it, I? There's just Holy so much shit. good, there's so much good subtext in horror. There's just so much. It's always about something else. I love it. Oh, so good. Okay. Now, the 2021 Candyman. Was it new progressive or the same? Progressive, regressive. How has the story evolved with today's ideals? I think it was the same. I don't think it was necessary. I didn't think it like necessarily progressed from the first one. I think it had more to say with the same narrative and the same perspective. Like... The first one was very intentional with what it had to say, and this one just kind of carried that message. But in the way that it like evolved with today's ideals, where it's now acknowledging some of the more prevalent and more specific to today's day and age issues when it comes to white supremacy and, and this system in large, when it comes to uh, gentrification or when it comes to uh, class intersectionality between blackness in class and whiteness in class and and how that exists and permeates itself also in conjunction with gentrification and 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 the perception of 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 blackness in america and also the insidiousness of whiteness and how it will at the end of the day destroy everything it's close to or in proximity to and that's by design so i think in the way that it has addressed some of today's ideals i think that it did a great job I don't think it was progressive because, again, the first one, I think, did a great job. So it didn't need to progress necessarily from anything. 
maybe Candyman, the first one, was ahead of its time in the way that it was so uh, unapologetic in the way that it told its story. I think it. I think that this one was great. <laughs> what do you think? How do you feel? I think it was new, interesting, and the same. And it's always really interesting when all of those fit together because, yeah. like, generally, I don't think that they do, no. um, or not very often. But um, yeah, I mean, it was absolutely continuing the same story it was continuing the same themes the same everything but it was just so fresh and so new at the same time even though the original was having these conversations about you know gentrification and um, white supremacy and um, patriarchy and capitalism and uh, you know whiteness in general it's this one just really doubled down on that and I liked that um it did so through the like not through a white woman um yeah, that it so wasn't I, a white narrative it wasn't like a white centric narrative yeah so i like that we got to see a different side of that and i just i thought it was so fucking cool that anthony was the kid like that still just I, blows my mind yeah. and it didn't feel um a lot of the time when they do that in writing it feels awful and it feels shoehorned and everything it, it feels so shoehorned usually and this it was so very natural and very yeah. good and it felt like this is the only way that story could have been told um it was I, such a good twist i was like <gasps> Yeah. (laughs) Um, I do think that it was a little bit more progressive. I mean, the original one was absolutely progressive and really does hold up with like, you know, today's ideals in a way that like 99 other 99% of other movies can't. But this one was a little bit more progressive because of the framing of cops and of of that whole institution as bad. I mean, from the very beginning, we see the shadow puppets where this kid is making them on the wall and it's like cops and robbers and the cops are beating the shit out of like, even though he's controlling them, he is like, you know, the cops in the shadow are like beating the shit out of the, the robber or the whoever, um, whoever it is. Right. Because from the beginning, cops are bad cops kill people cops beat people and it never really relents on that so yeah i I think it was slightly more progressive i think it evolved with today's ideals a little bit better especially as we're seeing more gentrification i thought that it just it was very good yes yeah oh yes i i mean that's the other question but (laughs) those are all the things that i thought eric who is it Uh, for um i'm gonna say everyone again uh just because I do think that it is like it does bring about a very uh, interesting conversation about whiteness and about the system. So I do think that like, yeah, most people should watch it and see it and hear it. And it's also, I think, just like a good movie in general. Who do you think it was for? Same. I mean, like everybody can watch this and get something out of it. And I think it just really makes you examine your place in the world. Yeah. Which is... um which is really great. It's a little bit more poignant in that than the first one, I think, because the first one, you can just watch it on a surface level, maybe not get as much as we did out of it if you're just Mm -hmm. watching it to watch it rather than to analyze it. But this one, it's just very, like, forward, hey, here's this, you know? But, I mean, to me, it didn't feel ham-fisted. But again, I watched the first one, so I had that context of this is what the story has always been about. So, yeah. Did you like it? I thought it was great. I thought it was fantastic. I really liked it. Did you? I really liked it too. I think it's a great movie. I think it's on video on demand right now um, and it's worth every penny. 
yeah. watch the first one because you can watch that um i think a couple of places you could watch it on tubi <laughs> <laughs> But um, watch the first one, too. It's I mean, both of these movies are really, really, really good. Five stars also, for both. It's also such a good back to back watch. Like it really fla- they each flavor each other incredibly well. Um, it a works. A smooth 90 minutes. A smooth 90 minutes. Yeah, yeah. You can get through both of them in about three hours. And this honestly, isn't... as as like a longer story, it's so it is. It's great. It's really, really good. This is half the runtime of Zack Snyder's Justice League at less than half that runtime and um, infinitely more substantive. True. <laughs> all right, cool. Well, uh, thank you so much for listening. Thank you. Please follow us on all our social medias and like and interact. Also, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. If you're able to rate and review, please do it because it really helps us. Truly. Uh, Our artwork and music are by Eric Lefebvre. Editing is by Danny Barkley. And thanks again for listening. And thank you, Eric. Thank you, Jess. (laughs) And remember, stay cute. And stay critical. Bye. Goodbye. This podcast has been brought to you by the Nostalgia Network. Visit thenostalgianetwork.com for more. Hey everybody, I'm Eric. I'm Shelby. I'm Jake. And we are the band Lousy Advice from the Lousy Advice Podcast. Come listen as we draft artists and genre-centric best-of lists. With the help of our closest friends. These lists are canon. And there's not a goddamn thing you can do about it. From misfits to share. Green Day to Gaga. Or Pup to Paramore. Listen to the Lousy Advice Podcast now or else. Stream us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, the Nostalgia Network, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget that we are the band Lousy Advice, and this is our podcast, the Lousy Advice Podcast. The Lousy Advice Podcast? The Lousy Advice Podcast. Podcast. Podcast.